All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the Word of God together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Our Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your Word. You have revealed to us who we are and the basic problem that we have, which is sin. It's the greatest problem that we could ever face in life, and yet you have solved that problem. You have provided for us a perfect salvation, a perfect redemption. You have provided a way to justify us freely by your grace, and for that we are so very grateful. And Father, as we study about you this morning, study about uh, your love for us and our love for you, we pray that you would... Help us to understand these things, to enlighten the eyes of our soul, that we may clearly perceive the truth of Scripture and its application in our own lives, in our own thinking, and in the way in which we carry out our lives on a day-to-day basis. May we be transformed by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit through your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in the... Gospel of Matthew, and last time we were looking at the third question that is asked uh, by the uh, opposing religious leaders to Jesus, question regarding the uh, Torah, what is the greatest of the commandments. It was designed to be a question to trap him, and as the previous two questions Uh, Jesus has a very sophisticated answer that uh, avoids being caught in their trap, but it captures a critical understanding of a vital foundational teaching, not just in Torah. I mean, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength wasn't something that that man was expected to do. uh, From 1446 on... But it had been expected prior to that, that that just as murder was not uh, defined as a sin by the Mosaic law, but had been uh, a sin since the beginning of the human race, uh, the, the law was just the instantiation of these commands within the framework of the legal constitution for what would be the new Jewish nation. And so uh, Jesus focuses on this as foundational to all other law that was part of the Torah. So we've looked at these three questions. The first one was, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus took the coin, said, whose image is on the coin, and then said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. 
The second question was another trick question proposed by the Sadducees, who didn't even believe in the resurrection, and they set up this somewhat uh, fallacious hypothetical that you had a man who who died young without children, and uh, under the laws of levered marriage, his wife, his widow, would marry his brother, and they would go through seven brothers. Each one would die prematurely. And then they propose their trick question, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And then Jesus, in his inimitable way of winning friends and influencing people, says to these who prided themselves on the knowledge of Torah, you err because you don't know the scriptures. He won them over that day, right? Not at all. And he pointed out that in the, the resurrection that We would not be marrying or given in marriage, just like the angels. The third question is, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And it's covered in Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Jesus said the greatest commandment was that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, like it, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, we haven't, we covered this in terms of the overall teaching of this passage last, last week. But today, uh, next week, and the next week, we need to probe this a little more because we need to understand what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The question is raised in Matthew 22:35. One of them, a lawyer. Matthew says it's a lawyer. Mark says it's a scribe. Both are true. Uh, the lawyer idea isn't the kind of lawyer you know, but an expert in Torah. And he was a Pharisee. He was an expert in Torah. As a scribe, he would be an expert in Torah. And he asked this question, what's the great commandment of the law? Mark gives us the full reply. It comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy, which we'll look at in a second. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Matthew, Matthew gives a shorter version. That's the one on the screen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we see the Greek words there, and essentially these terms, heart, soul, mind, are synonymous. They are used uh, to depict the inner immaterial life of an individual. He's not making distinctions between them. He is using all three of them to make the point that it's with everything that you have, and that's what comes across in the last word. It's the word translated strength in the, in the Septuagint, iskus, uh, the, the Greek form from the Greek translation made about around 200 B.C. Actually, as we'll see in the Hebrew, it's a little different word uh, expressing that kind of idea. Uh, the quote comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Mark gives the full quote, quoting the uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 at the beginning. And the reason that's important is because as a trick question, that the Pharisees would be thinking, well, how can you really distinguish between different commands and say one is better than the other? I mean, if God commands two things and they come from God, aren't they of equal importance? And so when Jesus begins the quote as Mark presents it with the Shema, which was considered the ultimate command in Judaism, they recite the Shema three or four times a day, Hear, O Israel, the word hear in Hebrew is Shema. That's why it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord our God, Yahweh 
Ahad. Now that's an interesting word there translated one. That's a traditional interpretation. But the word Ahad does not indicate a singularity. It indicates a multiplicity within a singularity. Thus, the two become one flesh in marriage. There are still two personalities within one union. But the I think the... Um, the Tanakh, the 1986 Jewish Publication Society translation captures the meaning well in terms of the context. It's not talking about uh, the Lord is one, meaning it's a, it's a singular monotheism or a Unitarian monotheism, which is often the response that you'll get from uh, the Jewish community and from rabbis. But the rabbis who translated the Tanakh translated it the Lord alone. Because if you read the context of Deuteronomy 6, The Israelites are being told not to worship other gods, not to fall prey when they go into the land to the gods and goddesses of the Canaanites and to worship them and to abandon Yahweh. So it is a command not to avoid idolatry and worship Yahweh alone. That leaves plenty of room to understand the Christian doctrine of the plurality of God known as the Trinity as evidenced in passages like Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where we read God saying, let us, a plurality, let us make man in our image. If there was a singularity, God would be saying, let me make man in my image. But it's a plurality there, so it indicates a plurality in the Godhead. But this is quoted as the foundation. The Lord alone now... Now, what is significant about this is the next verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's translated by the New King James as strength. Uh, The first word for heart is levav, and that means the heart, which usually in the Old Testament refers to the thinking part of the soul or the innermost part of the soul where the beliefs are held. This is thinking we believe with our mind, we don't believe with our emotions. You don't believe with some other part of your body. You believe with your mind. It's a concept where you appropriate something and you accept it as either being true or false. This is a a property of the intellectual part of our soul. We don't believe with emotion. Emotion is incapable of, of thought. It is not rational. It is simply a response to thought. So we're to believe with all of our heart, meaning our thinking, our soul. Again, these are used synonymously. And the Hebrew uses this third word I have on the screen on the right. It is ma'od, which is simply an adjective for something that is very great. And it it's usually uh, modifies something else, like something is, is very dark or very big or, or, or very bright. But here it's just very and it was used as, a, as an idiom to I- indicate to the fullest extent possible. So we are to love the Lord our God with every ounce of our, uh, of our being, with every part, every fiber of our being. We are to give everything to him. He is to, to be the sole focus of our lives to the exclusion of, of everything else, for if we put anything else in a position that's more significant than God, then that is idolatry. So again, this is a verse that is emphasizing the the exclusivity of this relationship with God. So when we're commanded 
to love God, and we're commanded to love God throughout the Scriptures, even in the New Testament. So this is not something that's distinct to the age of the law in the Old Testament, but is part of the New Testament as well. When we are commanded to love the Lord, we have to stop and think about what that means. What does it mean to love God? We live in a world today that doesn't think very much about the concept of love. We have been in a postmodern worldview scenario since, uh, at least at pop culture level, since the 60s and the love and peace generation came along and uh, with the baby boomers, and we, love was equated with sex, love was equated, equated with just emotion, and equated with sentimentality, and the church came right along behind that, as is typical throughout 2,000 years of church history, that the, the, the church, rather than distinguishes itself from the world, just follows worldly ideas, because unbelievers get saved, they enter into the church, they bring with them all that worldly baggage in their thinking, and um, a lot of places they just don't teach them enough to follow the commands of, Re- of Romans 12.2, to renew their minds, to be transformed by the Word of God. And so they continue to think just like they thought before they were an, a, a believer. They, they, they think as an unbeliever. And so what we see today is the byproduct of 40 years of, of uh, undefined uh, thinking, a lack of analytical uh, thought related to the concept of what it means to love. And so you go to a lot of churches today, and they'll talk a lot about love, and they will emote, and it's sentimental, but there's no, there's no real teaching that takes place. And what we'll see is to love God is predicated scripturally upon not only uh, upon knowing God. We're to learn about God. And the only way we can learn to love God is to learn his word. And if we don't learn his word, then it's just, it's just empty, meaningless emotion. So there are a couple of things that I want to look at today as we begin this. First of all, in sort of an introductory summary, I want to look at what the Scripture says about God being love. But because what precedes our loving God is that God first loved us. And so we have to understand God's love before we can begin to talk about what it means to love God. And so the first thing is about a four-point Uh, introduction related to God as love, and then second, we'll look at about 10 points on the nature of God's love. So we need to learn to love God. Love is an essential characteristic, the scripture teaches, about the nature of God. So a chart that we use quite a bit to help people capture the essence of God in these ten attributes. God is sovereign, which means he is the uh, king of kings. He rules over all of his creation. He is the ultimate authority in the universe. He is absolutely righteous, which means that he is the standard of right and wrong. Who he is, his character is perfect righteousness. He does not uh, submit to some higher abstract ideal of what is right or wrong. He is the ultimate determiner of right and wrong. The application of that standard to his creation is his justice. He is a just judge, the psalmist says. He judges the world 
on the basis of his own righteousness. But he is also love. And although liberals and unbelievers say, how can he be love and just at the same time? It's because they don't understand love and they don't understand what justice is because God is the one who defines both. We're told in Scripture that he is holy. That's one of a few things, as we'll see in a minute, that is stated about the nature of God and that he is love. He is also eternal. He is eternal life. He has no beginning and no end. Then we have the three omni characteristics. I call them the omni brothers. Omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Omniscient means he knows all of the knowable. There is nothing he doesn't know. He knows the hypotheticals. He knows what would happen if you had married that person you thought you were in love with in high school. He knows what would happen if you had gone to uh, the other university or college that you had an option to go to. He knows what would happen if you had taken another job rather than the one you have. He knows everything, all the what-ifs he knows. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent, which means he is present fully to every part, every molecule of his creation, uh, everywhere. And he is omnipotent. He is able to do everything he intends to do. He is all-powerful. There is no force, no creature, nothing in the universe more powerful than God. He is all-powerful. He is veracity, a word for truth. He is absolute truth. Jesus made this claim to deity when he says in the well-known verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he says, I am the truth, he is making a claim to be divine because God alone is truth, absolute truth. And he is unchangeable. He is immutable. He is as part of that absolutely faithful. And all these different attributes come into play when we talk about the love of God. So just a reminder on his essence as we focus upon God's love. First of all, we're told in Scripture that God is love in two places, First John chapter 4, which draws out a lot of the implications of God's love. We read in 1 John 4, 8, uh, He who does not love does not know God. We'll come back to that verse, and then it says, God, For God is love. It defines who he is. 1 John 4, 16 says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in his love, and that's talking about fellowship, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about the spiritual life, walking in fellowship with the Lord. We have other passages that talk about what God is. John 4.24 says that God is spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1.18, the text says that God is faithful. In 1 John 1.5, God is light, which is using a metaphor to describe the holiness, the righteousness of God. It says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In these verses, we're told that God is love. Psalm 99 says that God is holy. The term holy means totally unique, set apart. It is often used to summarize his righteousness and his justice, 
but it also includes his love. We might also use the word absolute integrity when we think about this concept, but holiness means set apart. He is distinct from his creation. He is the unique being of the universe. This is God. He is the just judge in Psalm 7:11. God is a just judge. God is the judge in Psalm 75:7. God is gracious and then in the second line of Psalm 116:5 God is merciful. Grace and mercy are uh, attributes of his love, his unconditional love. So the first point is we have to understand that God is love. It is inherent. It is one of those core attributes that define who he is. So if we're ever going to say anything about love, if you're going to tell your spouse, I love you, your children that you love them, your friends that you love them, we always have to recognize that whenever we use that word love, it ultimately must go back to an understanding of love as is manifest in the person the essence of God. So we have to really think about this concept. Second, we're told in Scripture that God is the one who initiated love towards a human race, that he is the one who reaches out. It is not man that reaches out and develops some idea of God, but that God is the one who took the initiative to love his creatures, to even when they were fallen creatures. Again, we're in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. I put the him in brackets because if you're using an NASB, NIV, NEV, NET, uh, ESV, any of the modern translations based on what's referred to as the critical text in the Greek, it, it doesn't have the word him there. So if it were just to say we love, that could mean love for creatures, love for friends, family, loved ones, spouses. But there are a number of manuscripts, in fact, the majority text, plus Codex Sinaiticus, which is a very strong ancient manuscript, have the direct object there that we love him. But it also fits the context because the very next verse talks about those who claim to love God. So the topic here is loving God. So so 1 John 4.19 should be understood to say we love him because he first loved us. God takes the initiative. And our love for God, therefore, is a response to his initiating love. And that's interesting because that sets up an important analogy that is used in Scripture between God and man. And that's the third point. This makes God equivalent to the male in a male-female relationship in that he is the initiator. Men are built physically, emotionally, and intellectually to be the initiator. Females are built to be the responder, to be the one who accepts and receives the male. Uh, So the human race in this analogy is equivalent to the female as the responder. And that's important because this is one of the reasons that, that the Scripture uses the male pronoun always to refer to God. We live in a world today that is bought into a fallacious autonomous value called uh, gender equivalence and uh, the equality of the genders in an ontological, uh, not in an, excuse me, in a, in a functional sense, in a functional sense. 
And so what you have is that this is extrapolated out into uh, these new translations of Scripture that refer to uh, God as a female, or they switch around the pronouns all the way through. Sometimes God's a she, sometimes God's a he. And it's true, God does not have a gender. But there's something that lies behind these gender distinctions that we have in the human race, and that is a functionality that males were created to initiate and to lead, and, and, and that doesn't mean women don't lead in certain spheres, but that they are designed ultimately to be the responsors. Men were given the ultimate responsibility in the garden. The female was created to be his helper, his aitzer. And there's only one other aitzer, one other helper mentioned in Scripture, and that's God. So it is a role that imitates God. This is a high-value term. Feminists come along and say, oh, the idea that women are to be helpers to men, that's subservient, uh, etc., that's diminishing the importance of women. But it's a role that God himself has, so it elevates the significance of women. It doesn't diminish the significance of women. But it also shows that these ideas in Scripture, that God is the initiator, that these pronouns should be translated as he because they relate to this as God, as the leader and the initiator of love. Fourth thing in this introduction is that human love is part of the image of God in all of us. When God created uh, man in the garden, we're, we're told that he created man in his image, male and female, he created in his image so that men and women have the ability to think as God thinks. They are self-conscious as God is fully conscious of who he is, and they also love as God loves so that they could reflect the love of God back to God freely and from their own volition. So human love being part of the image of God must be ultimately defined because its archetype, its ultimate pattern, is the love of God, His divine love. So therefore, in conclusion, we must understand divine love first if we are going to understand love at all. Only by understanding God's love can we begin to have a good, rational conversation about the nature of love. So that's the second part that we want to look at this morning, and that is answering the question, what is divine love? What exactly is divine love? Is this God's, uh, an attitude of sentiment towards the human race? Is, is this uh, somehow describe his feelings for the human race? Or is this something much more profound than, than either of those concepts? So the first point is that the pattern or paradigm the picture for us of divine love in Scripture is what happened at the cross. We probably won't get beyond this first point this morning. What is demonstrated, by, how is God's love demonstrated to us? What's the picture that he gives to us? And the first comes from a verse that is well known for all of us, John 3.16. For God, as it's translated, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the pattern that's laid down here is God's love. 
But we don't always catch that in the English because when it's translated for God so loved the world, often what we hear, and you'll hear people translate this who haven't paid attention to the Greek, they'll say, for God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Isn't it wonderful that God loved us so much? And you'll hear sermons like that. And, oh, they're just such feel-good sermons, and everybody goes home feeling all warm and fuzzy. But that's not what the Greek says at all. The Greek uses the word that's on the left here on the screen, the word hutos. And this is a an intensifier that means that God loved in this way, or God loved thusly, or God loved, uh, God loved in this manner. Okay, so how did God love us? That's what the question it would be answering. How did God love us? This is how God loved us, that he sent his only begotten son. So it's not talking about the extent of God's love. It's talking about an illustration of how God loved us, that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. He loved us in such a way that he provided the solution to the greatest problem that we would ever face. And so it's important for us to understand a little bit about the nature of that particular problem. It's the sin problem, that when God originally created Adam and Eve in the garden, they were sinless. They were in his image and in his likeness. They were righteous, but it was an untested righteousness. And the test came in the form of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that they ate of it, they would certainly die. And we know what happened, that they disobeyed God, they ate from the fruit, and they died spiritually. They were separated from God. And at that time, God is not compelled by anything to do anything more other than to bring judgment upon them and to end the whole project and send them to eternal condemnation. There's nothing that demands that he do anything more. But God loved his creatures who were in his image in a way that that demanded for him, because of his love, that he provide a solution, a perfect solution, a solution that would take care of all of the problems, all of the consequences that would come as a result of of that sin. And so he provides this perfect solution. And this is seen in a second verse related to this point from Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Christ died for us. So both of these verses are basically saying that if you want to understand love, you have to understand this pattern, this paradigm, that to understand the nature of of this kind of a love. Both words use the Greek word agapao, the Greek verb agapao. There are about four different words that are used in the Greek language for love. Two of them are not used in the New Testament. Three, I mean, two are agape, or agapao is the verb, and phileo is the other verb. Agapao is the broader term that can incorporate even phileo. It's a big summary term. And phileo usually implies more of a direct, intimate, 
uh, intimate knowledge. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 is a verse that, that people often think of and, and sometimes quote as for salvation, doesn't have anything to do with salvation. The verse says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. It's a picture of fellowship, sitting down, having a meal together. Uh, the, this letter comes, I mean, this verse comes uh, in one of the seven letters to the seven churches, and it's addressed to churches as believers. And the way we know this is because the verse right before Revelation 3.19, uh, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, but the word there for love is phileo. Phileo is only used of God's relationship to believers. It's an intimate love. It is not agapao. Agapao is how God loves unbelievers as well as believers. But a more intimate love is suggested here, and only believers are the object of God's, God's phileo love. So what we see in this first point, that the pattern and picture for love for us is the divine love at the cross. So we have to unpack that. We have to look at the characteristics of that love in order to understand really what genuine love is, a love that is consistent with integrity, consistent with righteousness, and consistent with the character of God. If we as believers are going to ultimately uh, love God, we have to understand what it means. If we're to love others, our neighbor as ourselves. We have to understand what this kind of love means, and we'll come back and work on that more next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to get into your word, to think through the what you have revealed to us about yourself, about your love for us, to see the example of the cross, that you loved us in such a way as to give your Son to send the eternal second person of the Trinity into human, into human history where he took on a human body, lived among sinners, the righteous, holy, eternal second person of the Trinity, rubbing shoulders, walking the streets with corrupt, fallen humanity day in and day out, and ultimately being unjustly sentenced to death, brutally punished, beaten, crucified, to pay the penalty for our sin. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or listening, that they would come to understand that that death on the cross had each of us in mind, that Jesus died for you, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for every single human being. He paid the sin penalty. He was our substitute. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the only way that that can be appropriated and made ours is by trusting in him. It's not by works. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's, it's not by morality. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by giving. None of these things, it's simply believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says, and you will be saved. And for the rest of us, this is the foundation for understanding how we are to love God and how we are to love one another. And this is foundational to every other command in Scripture and is central to our daily walk and our daily uh, walk by the Holy Spirit. And the very first fruit that we see listed 
of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so this is miraculously manifested in our life, but as a result of our walk by the Spirit and our walk according to the truth of your word, which means we have to know your word, and we are each challenged by this, that we have to know your word to know you better, and only as we know you better uh, is God the Holy Spirit going to produce this kind of love in our lives. And we pray that we might be willing to take up the challenge to fulfill these commands in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.